Wow, well, no more surprises. Well, maybe one more. Well, it hasn't been a surprise, but it's been a delight. It's been this sermon series because we, we planned this out long ago. We, we prayed over it. We we're just hopeful that it would go well. And uh, what's happened has exceeded our wildest expectations. You have exceeded it. The, the passion, the excitement, the enthusiasm for God's word, people coming up to me and to staff saying, I'm so excited we're studying Revelation. I'm seeing things I haven't seen before. Someone said to me between services, you know, I've studied Revelation a number of times, but I'm getting new insight into God's word. And that's just a, a wonderful uh, blessing. I'm, I'm thrilled to be uh, a part of it and to be uh, an instrument of it for God's sake. So let's get into it. Let's look at Revelation chapter 2. We're looking at the third message that Jesus sends uh, to the angel of a particular church. The first one was Ephesus. The Ephesian Christians, they cared about the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But that was a problem because they couldn't care less about anything else, especially the things that mattered most to Jesus. They didn't care about evangelism and outreach into their community. They were a careless church. Last week, we looked at Smyrna. This is a church that was dealing with tremendous persecution. They were under tremendous pressure. They were a crushed church. Social pressure, economic hardship, slander, their name being dragged through the mud and, and some of them even being dragged off to prison to die. And then today we're going to look at the church in Pergamum. They were a compromising church, a compromising church. They were a church that had forgotten the lesson that I'm going to remind us of this morning because I think this is where God wants us to go with this message this morning Jesus promises to meet all of our needs. Jesus is enough. We lose sight of that. We lose sight of, of all that he has for us. We can become a compromising church and people too. So with that, I'd like to invite Sue Labrie to come forward and to read from God's word. And as she does, just as a way of our honoring of God's word, I'd invite you to please, if you wouldn't mind standing. And let's turn our attention to the passage. Yes, where's the mic? There, there it is, Pastor Frank's got it. Good morning. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp edge, two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the, of the nickel. Oh, nickel. Laetans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some to the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Please be seated. Okay, one more surprise. 
you know, I said how in each of these letters, Jesus pulls out one of the characteristics or attributes that he brings to the table. And I wanted to bring this to the table. Uh, Jesus says that he has a, a, a two-edged sword. You see that thing? That is, that's pretty scary. There's a lot of ooing and aahing in the first service. None, none here? No? <laughs> I was hoping we'd have a pumpkin that I could demonstrate how incredibly sharp this thing will kill. Uh, this was a, a, this is a replica of a Roman sword. And in Pergamum, their, uh, their city emblem was the sword of Rome. They were one of the few cities outside of Rome itself that were given permission and authority to execute capital punishment. They could judge on behalf of the emperor life or death, or maybe just cut off your nose for saying the wrong thing, or cut off your hand I better really be careful of this. Cut off your hand for, for something else. Jesus says, I come as one with a two-edged sword coming from my mouth. And really, he says, uh, Rome isn't the judge you should be worried about. You should be worried about me. Now, unlike the sword of Rome that was used to slaughter and kill and wreak havoc and terrible, dreadful fear in people, the word of God brings life and healing and draws us closer to the Lord. But it also is used to excise, to remove, to cut out that which is not meant to be in you or me, in the church, society, in his kingdom, in the whole world. You'll be familiar with this passage, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus says to this church, I come as the one who's carrying that kind of sword. A word that will cut through all of the garbage going on in that church and get to the truth. So let's look at the passage. Uh, Jesus says he knows where they live. And he calls it what? Satan's throne. Can you imagine if that's on the bumper sticker for our town? Come visit Maple Valley, Satan's throne. It doesn't really have a ring to it. I'm not sure people want to go there. Uh, Pergamum is, uh, was built in, a, in an area, a region where there was a large hill above it. And up on that hillside, there was a, a temple uh, to Zeus, the the God of all gods up on, that, up on that mountainside. Also, it was the earliest outpost from Rome that had a temple for the emperor, for Caesar, uh, built many decades before. They were very proud of their pagan worship of both the emperor and Greek and Roman gods. They also had there uh, a temple to Ascopolis, the Greek god of healing. Have you ever seen uh, someone in the medical field here, maybe a doctor or nurse, and you have the emblem of a pole with, with a snake wrapped around it? Now, we see that today, and we see health, right? We see our, our medical provider. The early church saw that snake like a snake in the grass, like Satan himself, the emblem of terror and of lies. So Jesus says, I, I know this church he says, I know you personally. I know who you are. I know what matters to you. 
I know where you live. I know what you've done. I know what you're capable of. He makes it personal. That's what ministry ought to do. That's what our, our theme, even through the Orange Curriculum this year, is making it personal, knowing these very things that Jesus knows about you and me and this church. He makes it personal. He says, I know what you're going through. I know what you've lost. He mentions Antipas, my faithful witness, someone who gave his life for believing in Jesus. Martyred. The original meaning of martyr was witness. Witness and, and being a martyr were combined. It wasn't just being a witness knocking on doors with, uh, with a track. Being a witness was being willing to spill your blood for the sake of Jesus. They've lost a loved one in Jesus' name. And he says, I know. I know that you've done this. In the midst of this terrible place where Satan's throne is, how bad does a town have to be to be the throne of Satan? And yet you have remained faithful to my name. So what's the problem? The problem is some within that church were teaching lies and falsehood inside the church, and they were compromising their integrity. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam and taught, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Verse 15. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The problem is they were accommodating and then compromising the teaching of God's word. They were not holding on and contending for the faith once passed down to the saints, Jude 3. And Jesus says, cut it out or I will. How about that? Cut it out or I will. Now, they probably knew their Bibles maybe a little bit better than you and I do, so let me remind you of the reference here. It comes from the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers chapters 22 to 25 this reference to King uh, Balak uh, and uh, Balaam. Let me tell you what the story was. King Balak was the king of, of Moab. And this was a time when uh, the ancient Israelites, before they were a nation, they're wandering in the wilderness, right? For how long? There you go. They're just wandering through the wilderness. Well, where are they wandering? What's the wilderness? It's someone's homeland at the time. They wandered right into Balak's backyard. And he doesn't take kindly to that. He wants to get rid of them. So what does he do? He hires one of their prophets. Balaam was an actual prophet. He was a Hebrew. And he hires him to curse the people of God, to call down some kind of, of I don't know, some kind of voodoo curse on them. And Balaam was incapable of doing it, not because of integrity, but because the Spirit of God would not allow him to do that. So they say, okay, we got to come up with another plan. Balaam's thinking, i got to make my money. So he goes to the king with another plan. He knows that he can't curse them, and so there can't be a spiritual curse. He can't, he can't put the fear of God into them literally. And the king knows his army is no match for these uh, Israelites that are out there. He, he knows that they'll get wiped out if they try to attack them. And so instead, they hatch a plan to send Moabite women to seduce the Israelite married men. This is in God's word. Pretty saucy stuff. 
It was a honey, it was a honey trap that drew them into compromise and adultery and idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping gods other than Yahweh. And you know what happens in the text? Spoiler alert, if you haven't read Numbers, you haven't been in Numbers recently. It worked. It worked. No spiritual attack that could put the fear of God into them and, and no military attack that could spill enough blood to scare them off. They were seduced and they compromised the integrity of their faith and faithfulness to God and certainly to their wives who aren't getting much mention in numbers. Jesus says, that's what's happening in your church. And we don't know exactly what the Nicolaitans, not the Nickelodeons, kids, not the Nickelodeons, they, they pour a green slime on you, but the Nicolaitans were probably doing something we think along these lines because they mention eating food sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. And we see in the book of Acts how all food is clean, you can eat whatever you want. We're thinking that they were giving permission to engage in that cult worship of the emperor and the Greek and Roman gods. It was that kind of food. It was that kind of party. Everybody's going. Everybody's got a ticket. We want to be a part of something. We want to be a part of what's happening in our culture. And sexual immorality, well, those temples, I think the little ones have left, there was temple prostitution happening. And this was an early form of Gnosticism that became a heresy in the early church. Gnosticism taught this. Your body is completely separate from your spirit, your soul. The body counts for nothing. You're just going to waste away. It'll be worm food. Your soul is what matters. So whatever you do with your body, it doesn't matter. You have complete license to do whatever you want. And in this case, it was licensed to sin. Not seeing the connection the deep connection, the biblical connection between body and soul. So where are we? On the one hand, we have the church in, in Ephesus who got doctrine right. They were orthodox. They taught all the right things. They, they probably had amazing Bible studies, and, and everybody got a gold star because they got all the answers to the quiz. But they didn't have love for Jesus. They'd forgotten their first love. And that love for Jesus in his own words would propel them into mission, into engagement in the culture. That's what Jesus is most disappointed about, that they're not taking all that they've learned of him and that that's not working itself out into engagement in the culture. That's the church in Ephesus. Now we got Pergamum. They're out in culture. They're actually doing good work. Maybe they're having a little bit too much fun doing it. And so they're allowing the teaching to be compromised. Well, it's open to interpretation. It's open to your opinion. Their core values and beliefs were beginning to accommodate. Friends, as God's people, we have to figure out how to relate to culture where we live. So which is it? Which will it be? A strong commitment to God's word and conviction, and holding each other accountable to that, teaching to our kids, or engagement with the culture, loving our neighbor, serving and sacrificing with open hands, just giving need as, as we see need because we see this as a work of God's kingdom. Which is it? Which will it be? Is that binary choice? I think that means a zero or one. The true Christian experience 
involves more than sound doctrine, but it is nothing without it. We can get both right by God's help. The, the reality is, this is what I'm saying, sound doctrine is for love and unity and worship inside the church, and it is also for joyful, full engagement in life outside the church. Listen, the church begins to compromise when people are clueless about the core convictions of Christianity. That's just a fact. I've seen it happen. When the people are clueless about the core convictions of the faith, when the preaching is sort of just watered down and kind of fuzzy, sort of, I'm not sure what the message was, but it has something to do with Jesus. When things get fuzzy, some focus is going to come in there and take its place. That's essential. But we also have to understand how sound biblical core convictions inform every aspect of life. So let's be a caring church without compromising. Amen? So this Wednesday we have trunk or treat. Trunk or treat. Bad. Bad, right? I mean, it's engaging in pagan rituals, and it's not, we should be honoring All Souls Day, not this Halloween cultural accommodation. But it's so much fun. Right? So we stand in the middle. We see this as a tremendous opportunity to engage in our culture. It's fun. It is fun to dress up, right? A little cosplay never hurt anybody. No blood or guts or scary stuff, but whimsical, fun, imaginative. You should have seen last year the children that came, how much fun they had, how the parents felt so safe to be able to come here in a closed, uh, closed off the parking lot and come from trunk to trunk and how we were able to bless those kids and love on them. I know one, uh, one of the uh, small groups from youth group put on a a whole display was it like a Hollywood scene. So each child would walk the red carpet and have reporters interviewing them and taking their pictures. And, and they're like, like they're stars of a Marvel movie, right? And then they'd get their one piece of candy, they'd get back in line and do it all over again. <laughs> There's a way we can do this, that we can hold on to our core convictions. And then we're being motivated to reach out to culture and engage culture in Jesus' name. Pergamum had gone too far, and they needed this warning. They were compromising too much, and they'd lost the ability to say no to culture. Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I don't know about all roads leading to Rome anymore. But friends, all roads lead to the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation 19.15, the Lord promises to bring judgment upon the nations. And so he says, repent. Change your mind. Do a 180 before it's too late. Jesus will not tolerate this kind of stuff happening in his church. He won't tolerate it. And so he warns them here and now, Turn around, make a choice, or I will make war with them with what? The words of my mouth. I will speak truth, and they will be convicted, and they'll either turn back to the Lord, or they'll turn away completely. 
Make war with your words, Jesus. Why is Jesus so intolerant? War? Repent? Intolerance? That doesn't seem very popular these days. Sure, sure won't pack out a church in a lot of places in the, in the country, although we're finding hard spots to find. Well, there are a few open spots. Some people are here. Why is Jesus being so intolerant? Because he loves the truth. He speaks the truth. He is the truth. And falsehood and deception enslave people. Jesus is deeply, deeply grieved when people are imprisoned by illness or poverty or injustice. But he's also grieved when people are imprisoned by lies, which imprison what? The mind. Because it traps the soul. And that's why he's come to bring, bring truth through his word. He says, repent, you're headed the wrong way. Look at verse 17. He who has, has an ear, because we listen to words, right? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I just noticed this as a little aside. It's interesting he has, there's the singular and the plural. He who has an ear, you as an individual person, men and women, you have an ear, do you have an ear to hear this word? Listen to the word he says through the Spirit, plural, to the churches, to all of the church. So you and I have personal responsibility, choices that we make that do impact what happens in the life of the church with a big capital C. You say, well, no, I, I, I just come occasionally. I, I, you know, I'm, what I do with my personal time is my own business. No, what you do with your personal life, if you're part of this family, impacts all of us because we love you and we care about you. So we need to listen to what the Spirit has to say. We also need to listen to one another. Now look around this room. We have people with so many different life experiences and, and backgrounds and, and perspectives and skills. We need to listen to what God has to teach us through one another. Perspectives we have. Questions that we can raise without giving a, a quick, well, no, that's the wrong answer. This is the right answer. Oh, tell me more. I've never heard that. That's an interesting insight. I haven't understood it that way. I know when I was at Fuller Seminary, where, where Sarah's att attending now, I had some dear friends that were African pastors. And when we talked about uh, the crucifixion and the, the students that were uh, North American, mostly white students, we thought about the horror of the pain, the agony, because we live in such a sterile, safe environment. We never see blood. Oh, gosh, someone get a nosebleed you know, on the soccer field, give them an orange wedge or something and some ice. You know, rush them to the ER. The African students, they get that. They said, you know, when we see that scene, what breaks our heart is that Jesus was abandoned by his friends. So I never thought about it that way because they have a different perspective on the, the power of community. And so we can have that same kind of shared life experience. Cheryl made me do something this week that I didn't really want to do. I went to the HOA meeting. <laughs> How do you ever want to go to HOA? Who wants to go to HOA? Who wants to go to the HOA meeting, really? I'd rather have a nosebleed. <laughs> they go to a homeowner association meeting. But she said, let's go. They need a quorum. They never get one. Let's find out what's happening. If we're going to be here, and we are long-term, we want to invest and care about what's happening in our wider community. So let's go and listen and learn and connect with people. You know what? We learned some things. I learned some things. I heard some things. And it was wonderful. Engage in your community. Reach out. It's okay 
to engage in culture. But why did they compromise in the first place? Why did this church compromise to begin with? The devil made him do it? Is that what we'd say? Say, well, that's not our church. That's a church that, that they just let the devil do it to them. I think that's a cop-out. I think it's a cop-out. Jesus is writing to one of his churches. There is an angel assigned to that church. There are believers there. And if you are a believer in Christ with an angel assigned to you, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. You and I need to take responsibility. And they can't be off the hook so easily to say, well, the devil made me do it. They need to be taken responsible for what they've done. So why? Why did they compromise in this way? I think as I thought about this week and reflected on it, I think it was a matter with unmet needs. I think that's where it started. Sin always goes back to heart issues, to issues of desire. And in this church, something was missing. Some need wasn't being met. And people were looking around and saying, where can I get that need met? And it was in the culture and it led to compromise. But the main point of the message in the letter here is this. Jesus promises to meet all of your needs. Look at the words. To the one who conquers. It's the one who is faithful, who overcomes, who sticks with it, who doesn't compromise. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. What is that, you ask? Manna was food provided, divine food provided by Yahweh to the children as they were off in the wilderness for 40 years, complaining all the time about how hungry they were, how it was so much better back in Egypt when we were enslaved, how much better it was we had food and vegetables. They want to go back to slavery, physical, mental, and spiritual slavery. And the Lord provides them manna. What's the unmet need? They didn't feel safe, cared for, and it was a matter of survival. John 6, 35, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. What does he say? He says, if you keep coming to me, the word there is a plural returning. It's an ongoing active word. Coming and believing on me, you will be satisfied. Listen, folks, the next time you feel that unmet need of being cared for, you have real pocketbook issues, and you see the, the, the sign that says that the uh, Powerball number is growing and growing, and you start to do what? What do we do? Daydream about what I do with all that money? Oh, I'd give some to the church for sure. For sure. As long as it's at least $150 million, I could give three or four million. Yeah, I could do that. Anonymously, right? <laughs> I'll let David Miles know that it was from me, and he'll spread the word anonymously. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? When you have those issues or some other unmet issue, maybe it's a, a relational issue, like, gosh, I just, I want what they have. I want what she has. Or maybe it's some other kind of need or desire for a promotion, whatever it is. Be reminded of this. Jesus is enough, and he promises to provide for all of your needs, the daily manna, the daily word to feed on. That's the unmet need that Jesus first mentions here in those people. You see, God's word is not a meat cleaver to bludgeon, you know, oh, you're not doing something right, we're just going to bludgeon and hack you apart. Nor is it a 
really scary sword. This is really terrifying. God's word is like a surgeon's scalpel in the hand of the great physician. Perfectly, geniusly executing surgery, making an incision. Yes, that might hurt. But for the purpose of removing a tumor, a cancer, a growth, something that's not meant to be there so that you might heal. It might be pride or bitterness or resentment or desire. If it wasn't meant to be there, trust him to remove it. Verse 17b, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I found nine different interpretations of the white stone. We're not going to go through all nine. I'm going to give you my top three. I'll count it down, okay? Top three interpretations. What is the white stone? Number three, the stones were used by jurors when they were um, uh, electing whether it was a vote of guilt or innocence, and the white stone was for innocence. And so he's giving them this great promise, you are forgiven. Number two, a white stone was given as a token to enter a banquet. You're in. You're forgiven and you're in. And the number one, drum roll please, uh, Exodus 28. It represents one of the stones in the high priest's breastplate of judgment. That's what the high priest, the ephod was called, the breastplate of judgment. And one of the stones, uh, all the stones there, but there were two of them that had the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so I think this really is him saying, you are known and you are welcomed into my family. Christ promises to meet all of your needs. He says, this stone will be written with your name on it. That goes to a promise of Revelation 22, verse 4, where it says, God's people will see him face to face. Through whatever circumstance you find yourself in, whatever issue we confront together, as a countercultural movement of Jesus followers, let's not be afraid to lean on one another. That's one of our great needs. And let's be willing to listen to one another and let's base what we do as a church on God's word. Let's pray. Through everything we face, oh God, as we're going to sing of, of battles and heartbreaks and circumstances, may we be open to the living and active word of God that is able to penetrate our distorted ideas and lead us to the truth and set us free. I pray, oh God, for anyone here who's sensing that, that knife coming to cut, the fear, some of us are afraid of needles, some of us are afraid of, 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 of being injured, Lord, rest us assured, put your hand on our shoulder that you're, you're doing that, excising that, that, that surgery on our heart to remove the dead parts, the bad parts that weren't meant to be there. Will you do that work even now, this first day of the week before we head out? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.